This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You would think that after thousands of years, human beings would find more complex reasons to hate one another. Yet racism still prevails to this day. The question is, why are people racist? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Professor Dr. Karim Batash of the Chinese University of Hong Kong and his specializations include cultural, political and social psychology. Now Karim, let's start from the basics. What exactly is racism? Okay, let's start from the basics. To begin, racism itself is the idea that people can be divided into racial groups. Okay, so often we think that racism only means having negative opinions about other people classified as racially different. But this is simply part of the story. Racism in the first place means categorizing people based on a socially constructed classification of people with regards to their biological features. Race and racism, like we know it today, were non-existent during most of human history. It's a very recent phenomenon invented during European colonialism. So all over history, we have had ruling empires where one group had the majority of wealth making their civilization the center, so to speak, of the world. We had the Egyptians, the Chinese, the Mongolians, the Arabs, the Ottoman Turks, and so forth. Mm. And currently, we are living in the aftermath of the European or Western Empire, which is now in decline. So what made the European Empire different from all other previous empires is that it was the most expansionist and arguably the most violent of all empires. And to justify this expansion over so many innocent groups across the world, Europeans invented a classification system. That is, everyone who looked non-European was classified as an inferior group that needed to be civilized and modernized. This, of course, was a delusion to convince Europeans themselves and their victims that the exploitation of non-European people was a good thing. So to get back to your question, this classification was completely unscientific and purely based on visible cues, such as skin color, nose bridge, tallness, for example. Mm. And the European decided that the more sun protection your skin has, the more inferior you are. Totally nonsense, of course, but this is unfortunately what happened. And to this day, the whole world is suffering from this way of thinking that, in my opinion, is a kind of evil. It is one of the greatest evils that has been done to mankind, that so many people around the world are, at the moment of their birth, already for the rest of their lives, classified as inferior, and they can never escape it. So let me emphasize that races do not exist. We very gradually change in appearance when we go from point A to point B on the world map. But there are no racial demarcations. 
Family members, for example, look alike. Okay, one family looks looks quite similar to each other compared to another family. That's but right. We, right. So we don't consider them of a different race, right? Similarly, people within the border of one country look alike compared to people within a border of another country because there is genetic proximity. That is all. Let me give you an example. Greeks, for example. Eh? You know Greece is a country in Europe. That's right. Greeks are considered white, right? But their neighbors, the Turks, are not considered white. So Greece and Turkey are neighboring countries. If you compare Greek people to, let's say, Dutch or Swedish people, and then you compare Greek people to Turkish people, who do they look like? Turkish people, of course. But Turkish are a majority Muslim country, and Greek, Greece is a majority Christian country. So Turks have historically been classified as non-white, and Greek, the Greek people have been classified as white. So here you see that religion also plays a role in this classification, and it shows to you how arbitrary this system is. Kare, when we talk about racism, right, um, racism at its fundamentals, at its core, is like you said, it's about putting people in categories based on their race. But then when we want to go deeper into the topic of racism, two terms people are, you always hear, especially when talking about countries, political structures, is systemic and structural racism. So what's the difference between just racism and also systemic slash structural racism? Right. So I, I think it should be a different distinction. Systemic and structural racism is a form of racism. Mm-hmm. I think you mean the difference between individual or systemic racism. Okay, right. So the, these are the two divisions that people usually make. And it's actually very simple. Individual racism is the act of discriminating someone else through your behavior. Okay, Think about avoiding a person because of his or her skin color, bullying someone because of his or her race, not hiring somebody for a job, and so forth. Okay, That's individual racism. That's happening on a day-to-day basis by individuals, by people, by groups of people, and so forth. And then we have something we call systemic racism. Systemic racism is how racial hierarchies are embedded institutionally into our societies. That is, differences in, for example, differences in incarceration rates of people based on their race, even though the crimes are similar. Or, let me give you another example, overrepresentation of people in certain low-status jobs because of their race or skin color. Or a lack of social representation in the media based on race or skin color. All these issues maintain racial hierarchies within societies on a systemic level. Now, what is also important to understand then is that systemic racism influences individual racism and vice versa. For example, only seeing light-skinned Chinese women on billboards, for example, or in the media creates an unconscious psychological understanding in people of who are considered beautiful and who are not. This is an example of systemic to individual racism, okay? So you see it systemically a overrepresentation of one group, and this influences people's individual psychology. Now, we also have the reverse going on. For example, an, em- an employer who wants to hire a 
so-called socially representative individual for his or her company who has internalized these conceptions of beauty may see a darker skinned person who applies for the job in her company as somebody she doesn't want because of this person's dark skin color. Okay. Because she thinks, okay, this person does not have a representative skin color and therefore I'm not hiring this person. If this happens on a societal scale, it becomes, of course, systemic. It becomes a systemic societal problem. Now, Karim, what's fascinating is you brought up the word hierarchy of races, right? And what's fascinating is that the hierarchy can change from one country to another country. So, for example, it can be said that, you know, Indians um, are at the bottom of the uh, social ladder in Malaysia, right? Indians are yeah. seen as the gangsters, the alcoholics, and um, things like that. All sorts of negative stereotypes. And right. but, however, if we flip, if we flip the narrative a little bit, and we look at countries like the U.S., um, Indians there are seen as taxi drivers. Um, that's sort of the worst stereotype um, attached. Um, or they are seen as these smart IT nerds. Whereas in the U.S., you have stronger negative stereotypes attached to Chinese people, for example. And there is the, 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 that, that's where you see uh, stereotypes about gangsterism and all that. How does this happen? How does racism or the narrative surrounding racism of a particular race, how can it switch from one country to another? Yeah, that's a, this is a very good uh, question, uh, Dashram. And this is because racism is not a biological thing, but it's a socially constructed category and it serves a social function. Just like during colonial times, racism always serves a function. And I always say, when studying racism, always ask yourself the following question. Who benefits? Who benefits from racism? Racism mostly throughout history has been beneficial for ruling elites. Okay, to give you an example right now, Islamophobia helped the U.S. invade and harm Muslim countries while most of public opinion supported the U.S. Mm. Similarly, anti-Chinese hatred that we see today helps the U.S. in its mission to contain China, who is becoming a global superpower. Okay, and also anti-Indian hatred and discrimination in Malaysia benefited some groups over others. Right. So that, that brings me to the historical component. Why are Indians classified as lower on the hierarchy in Malaysia than, say, Chinese or Malays? Well, to understand this, you must dive into history, okay? For, for racism and many other social issues, we always need to check history. During colonial times... The British, but also other colonial powers, such as the Dutch, separated the different groups in society hierarchically, okay, where the Indians were most often assigned the lowest status jobs. And the effect of this wealth and status difference can still be felt today as wealth always or always mostly stays within families from generation to generation. Similarly, the Indians in the U.S., were historically in a very different position than, let's say, black Africans who were enslaved and taken to the United States. Mm -hmm. So you can see today that black Africans are in a much more precarious position than other groups, including uh, people from India. 
except maybe Native Americans who also suffered extremely under uh, white supremacist colonialism. So to get back to your question, the danger with racism is that it jumps from group to group depending on the social situation. The classification of people into different racial groups always results in racism, as some groups will benefit and other groups will not, depending on the social historical context. Interesting phenomenon, however, is that racism never seems to victimize people classified as white. Have you ever noticed that? Can you That's think? Of, yes. Can you think of any situation where white people are systemically victimized by racism? Probably not. Why? And this goes to the root of the system of racism. It was invented to benefit one group, that is Europeans, over all other non-European groups. And to this day, it does its work. Racism seems to victimize every single group around the world except European whites. Think about it, how successful white supremacist racism has been doing its job, while Africans never colonized the rest of the world and through history have been one of the least violent groups. They get discriminated all over the world for their dark skin. Yet Europeans can travel the world, are treated with privilege and respect in most places where they come. Yet our history was the most violent and exploitative in recent history. What colonization has done to the rest of the world is horrendous. And we are only now beginning to discuss the horrors that colonialism has done to people and their ancestors. On that note, we do need to go for a very quick break. I'm speaking with Professor Dr. Karim Batash of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We'll be back with more on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and with me on Zoom is Professor Dr. Karim Batash of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we are pretty much talking about the psychology of racism. Now, Karim, why are people racist? You, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but let's dive into it. Racism is learned and not biological. And this is a very good question because so many people think it's a natural thing. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is absolutely not. And let me get a bit deeper into this. Studies have shown that indigenous groups of human beings who have never been in contact with westernized, globalized media, for example do not have a preference for light skin. Similarly, newborn babies do not show a preference for light skin before they have been culturally influenced. As a psychologist, I can tell you that the idea of, and you probably heard the saying, taste is in the eye of the beholder. This Mm. is nonsense. Taste is not in the eye of the beholder. It's largely shaped by our social context. It is so powerful that what we see as attractive may have been considered very unattractive in another place or time. And what has been attractive in another place and time may seem unbelievable to us that it was considered beautiful. And that shows how subjective human taste is and how much it can change. Now, to give you some examples, in classic Europe, large and overweight women were considered extremely attractive 
Slim women, on the other hand, like we see now, we consider now as beautiful, were considered unattractive and a sign of poverty. You see the connection between poverty and unattractiveness with something that they also assign to people with darker skin? Similarly, during the Arab Empire, somewhere between 700 and 1400, when the Arab world was the center of the globe, Eastern Ethiopian women, women that we now classified as black, and, and, and it's important to know that classification did not exist back then. Right. East, Eastern Ethiopian women were considered the most beautiful women. Old scriptures tell us that wealthy Arab men really preferred Ethiopian women. It is during the past 500 years of colonialism that the European created a system where we should admire European features and consider this as the most attractive. This is very recent and has colonized most people around the world psychology. This was done in a very efficient way by using, for example, let's say religious images. Think about white angels. Think about the Christian God portrayed as a typical white man. And today it is done through media. Think about Hollywood with white heroes and darker skinned people like their sidekicks or even criminals. Think about video games with only white heroes, fashion programs with 90% white women. This way you shape people's psychology and their taste is inevitably influenced by it. This is why social representation of other groups of people and in particular darker skinned groups is so important. The more we are confronted in our everyday lives with the diversity of people, the more we will see them as equal. Now, Karim, there are some who argue that um, you know, racism is a psychological defense mechanism um, generated by feelings of insecurity or anxiety. You know, perhaps this person had a bad experience with someone of a certain race. How would you respond to this? Actually, this can be said of any kind of socially constructed category. Okay? In psychology, we call this downwards comparison. So when you feel bad about yourself, when you're insecure, you can do two things. One, you can look at people better off than you and think, I'm a failure, I suck. Okay, so it makes you feel worse. Or two, you can look at people who are worse off than you and think, at least I am better than him or her. So racism can serve this function of downwards comparison. It's very sad, really. So a person can feel deeply insecure about him or herself. Think about someone like Donald Trump, who was deeply insecure, always bragging about how great he is because he had that psychological need for validation. People like this often kick down on people who are worse off. And many times, an easy target are people who have historically suffered the most under racism. This is why it is so sad to see people in colonized societies discriminate each other while they treat people who look like their former colonizer with privilege. Let's say, for example, a Chinese person discriminating an Indian person. Both of them, the Chinese and the Indian, are victims of the unfair system of racism invented during colonial times. But instead of attacking this evil system, they maintain it by discriminating each other, kicking down on other groups, like the colonizer once intended you to do, 
but leaving, of course, the white Europeans off the hook. So you see, until today, we see the same racial hierarchies around the world, with white Europeans still on top. Mm. Karim, let's explore you know, the different aspects of society and how they can shape our racial bias or sort of continue to propel um, racist narratives. Now, let's start with parents or the family, the home, right? What role do our parents or family play in shaping our racial bias? Yeah, parents play, in my opinion, an extremely important role. Why? Because they are the conveyors of culture. So you can either be raised critically, for example, and break with some of the evil conventions of our culture, such as racism, or you can be raised according to these conventions. Let me give you an example or a few examples. Mm -hmm. I have a Chinese PhD student who is very critical of social conventions. She's a very open-minded person and has friends from all different racial groups. And she is actively busy eradicating and fighting against racism. Okay. Now I have another Chinese student of mine, Malaysian Chinese, Mm -hmm. who once told me, and this is a true story, who once told me that it took her many, many years to lose her fear for dark-skinned Indians. And I have asked her this, why? One of the main reasons she told me was because her mother always told her scary stories about Indians when she grew up. This is, in my opinion, almost a form of child abuse, that you instill such fear in your child for other human beings based on their outside biological characteristics. And this is not only child abuse. It is also abuse of innocent Indian victims, for example. I've talked to many victims of racism in my career. And all victims can tell me that they feel and sense that other people are afraid of them because of their skin color and appearance. I've spoken to many dark-skinned Indian Malaysians, for example, who told me that they very often experience these microaggressions from, for example, Chinese women, avoiding them at the station, avoiding eye contact, holding their back extra firmly, and so on. This is psychologically exhausting to the victims. And therefore, we must make sure that all of us fight against cultures of racism. Now, what about the media, Karim? What role does the media play in shaping racial bias? A tremendous role as well, just like Paris. Tremendous role. Like I said, it already happened during colonial times through imagery. Remember these these paintings with with white angels and and a white Christian God and so forth. By representing one group as worthy and and other groups as inferior, when you do that on a day-to-day basis, you shape people's psychology. Now, to all your listeners right now, and maybe yourself, Google the following. Google the doll test, okay? The D-O-L-L, the doll test, which shows you the powerful effects of social representation. In this psychological experiment, little children already at a very young age, when given the choice between a white or a black doll, disproportionately choose the white doll. In fact, Also, black children most often 
choose the white doll. We're talking about black American children. Right. When asking the children which doll is good and which doll is bad, most children, both black and white, state that the white doll is good and the black doll is bad. This is the psychologically destructive force of racism, that little children already feel that skin color marks goodness or badness to such an extent that black children have internalized themselves as being bad because of their natural skin color. And this is what social representation and therefore the media can do. When you mostly have movies with white or light-skinned heroes, with black and brown criminals or doing low-paid jobs, or you have a few dark-skinned heroes who are either the sidekick or they, they always die first, for example, you also see that very often. Mm -hmm. when, when you have fashion programs hardly showing any dark-skinned people, when you have an education system that only celebrates white and European scientists and historians and philosophers and so forth, then you shape people's psychology all over the world in a racist manner. We all need to become aware of this. We all need to actively see what is happening around us in the media and other parts of our societies and start to question everything you see. You must start to question everything you assume as normal. Why do I always want lighter skin makeup? Why do I smile more and act more friendly to European white people than when I see a dark person? Why are heroes in my video games always light-skinned? Why do I feel more negatively about Muslims than Christians while Christians colonized my country? Why do I think negatively about black people? Why do Google images, for example, mostly represent white people when I Google a neutral word, such as, for example, let's say, hairstyle? You see? So we always need to question these things that are in our environment, such as media, as, 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 and that we always assume as normal. We need to actively question these things. Yeah, certainly, because these are things that affect us subconsciously, implicitly, without a lot of us even knowing, right? Definitely. Uh, Karim, now let's talk about the uh, government and politics and their role in driving racial narratives. What role do they play? Because I think this ties back into this idea of colonization that you were talking about earlier, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, so we have media, we have parents, all a big role. And, and now you have another very good point, that's the government, which also plays a huge role. Why? Well, again, racism often benefits a powerful class. By dividing people into racial groups, they will start to fight each other and avoid uniting. If they unite, they are a powerful force against the ruling class. The, the European colonizer knew this. And to avoid people in the colonies from revolting, they, separate, they separated people into different groups and made sure, this is very important, made sure that some people, some groups got privileges over other groups. And therefore, these people started to feel superior over other groups. By doing this, the people who were colonized would discriminate each other 
And the ones who got a little bit more privilege would try and hold on to their relative privilege while they would never unite, these colonized people, against the oppressor class, against the colonizer. If they were divided, the colonizer could go on and extract and steal resources from the colonies, which made the West so rich as it is today, while all former colonies are now third or second world countries, with a very few exceptions, such as Hong Kong. But even there, colonialism and the resulting capitalism has created an extremely unequal society between the rich and the poor. So again, do you see, always ask with racism, who benefits? Who benefits? Now, Karim, as we wrap up our conversation here, um, we've been talking a lot about the psychology of racism, but now the question is, what can we actually do about it? How do we solve the issue of racism? Can this issue even be solved in the first place? Okay, this is a very, very, very difficult question, and I wish I had a full answer. So many, <laughs> so many people have tried to solve it. Think about uh, Nelson Mandela. Think about Malcolm X, and so forth. So it's a very, very difficult. If we want to solve racism, I think. We must first realize it is tied to wealth, to capitalism. Okay, this is a very important point that, that never gets raised. How important capitalism is for racism. There has never, ever been any group perceived as inferior who at the same time was rich. In other words, wealth tied to so-called racial features creates a myth of racial superiority. Think about Western wealth. With this wealth, the West not only controls other nations politically through economic and military dominance, but the West also controls media narratives, as we just discussed. This maintains psychological superiority over people by portraying one group as better than others. If we want to eradicate this, we need a new equitable system that is not based in capital wealth, which stays within certain groups. So my personal preference is an alternative system than the unequal system of capitalism. However, we are still not there yet. Economists are all discussing what should we do, but nobody has the answer yet. So the only, the only solution right now against systemic racism is that wealth gets equally, equally distributed among different groups, okay? That is, that is one way. The second way, is that we need to get rid of classification of people based on biological features. It is useless, especially nowadays, where you can be a black European or an Indian Malaysian or whatever, classification based on so-called racial features are not indicative anymore of where you are from or even who you are, okay? Take me as an example. I am Dutch. I am one meters 95 or 64, and most people would classify me as a European. However, when they hear my name, they notice there is another heritage in my family. And indeed, my father is of Algerian descent. So here you see that all these nonsense ethnic classifications are not indicative of who you are or where you are from. Sometimes they are indeed, and sometimes they are not. More importantly is how someone culturally identifies him or herself. That means regardless of what you look like, 
what do you identify as yourself? Do you identify as Malaysian? Do you identify as Dutch? Do you identify as a mixture of them? Or, as increasingly is happening with the new generation, young and critical thinkers, they simply identify as a global citizen without tying themselves to a flag or a territory such as a nation state, because that has historically only functioned to separate people. So, in any way, the question of how do we solve racism is very, very complex. But I am optimistic. I see change all around me. This is really true. I literally see change all around me, not just Black Lives Matter, which is fantastic that it happened all over the world, mm -hmm. but also on the individual level with my students and my friends and family and so forth. In particular, I've noticed with young Asian students who increasingly become critical of this European hegemony in all of their facets of, facets of their lives and also this light skin domination in all facets of their lives, okay? You see with the young generation that they start to question these things. This is very, very good. We need to be aware. We need to be very aware of everything that we assume as normal and question these things. Always question things you see around you. This, in my opinion, is the way to change Dashram. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Karim. My pleasure, my pleasure, anytime. That was Professor Dr. Karim Batash of the Chinese University of Hong Kong and his specializations are cultural, political and social psychology and we were talking about the psychology of racism. So if you missed any part of this show, you can download the podcast on the BFM app or on bfm.my. Once again, I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Today I Learned BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.